0: You're listening to the Healing Birth Podcast, and I'm your host, Carla Sargent. Each week, we'll spend an insightful and inspiring hour together, listening to the stories of people who have journeyed from trauma to healing and discussing the insights of birthkeepers who support others to heal. Whether you're new to the world of birth, a longtime parent, or someone who has an insatiable appetite for all things birth related, this podcast offers hope and love guidance and peace, as together we explore how healing our earth begins with healing birth. Dr Naomi Simmons works as an independent researcher with a focus on land-based learning, women's land-based knowledges, Māori maternities and whānau family family wellbeing. Her most recent research involved walking 378 kilometres, retracing the journey of her pregnant ancestress Mahinarangi to understand the transformations, knowledges and rituals for women that are embedded in the footprints of her ancestors. Naomi's PhD research, awarded Best Doctoral Thesis 2015 by the New Zealand Geographic Society, looked at Māori understandings and experiences of pregnancy and childbirth. Naomi also has a part-time role working with Māori communities on climate change for the Deep South National Science Challenge. She is a mother to two girls and spends most of her spare time at her ancestral home, Pekitu, working on environmental protection and restoration projects. In this episode of the podcast, Naomi shares snippets of her own journey of birth and of the undeniable links for her people between language, land and birth. Through exploring this and the impacts of colonisation and ongoing systemic racism, she acknowledges the challenges faced by Māori birth givers and pathways to the healing. Kia Dr Naomi Simmons. It's awesome to have you here with me today on the Healing Birth Podcast. Um, and I guess I, I'd like to start off this uh, kōrero with sharing with our listeners that uh, how you and I first met and. Um, That was back in 2012 or 2013 when I was putting together my book of New Zealand home birth stories, Where the Heart Is. And you, uh, I'm not sure how I connected with you, but you offered up your story of Anahira's birth um, to share in in my Māori birth chapter of my book. And and as well, you agreed to write the kind of the, I guess, the introductory section of, of that chapter. Um, and and it's freaking legendary. <laughs> I love what you wrote for that piece, and um, and you've you know you've I've always found you inspirational, and in, and uh, in your um, the wisdom that you've shared with with me, with our readers, with um, but also with my training groups. So you've been coming on and and talking, speaking to cultural considerations when it comes to uh, birth work for well, New Zealanders at least. Um, so I would love for you to share with us um a, a little bit about who you are, uh, a little bit about the incredible work you've been doing in the field of Māori birthing. Uh and and just like what inspired you to get into that field of work. Yeah,
1: thanks Carla. Oh yeah, um wow, Anahira is nearly 13, so that's how long ago that was. Um and I was I think mid PhD at that point. Um so actually all of that feels a little bit <laughs> like a blur uh to be honest. Um yeah and that was actually beautiful to reflect um and to have space to reflect on her birth and what that means in a bigger context of Māori birthing as well. Um and I guess that's effectively what I've been doing for the last 13 years, really, in terms of my research and just personally as a mother um, and have since had Hineka uh, Rohirohi, who was six and I'm 26 weeks hapū with number three. So, yeah, it's a, um, it's a little bit like a spiral, I think. You know, we circle back on these things. We circle back on our learnings and our experiences. Um, And I've had the privilege to work in a more formal sense, I guess, in terms of my employed work in um, the Māori maternities and research space. Um, I hail from a tiny little town in the centre of the North Island, Putararu, born and bred. It's where most of my learning has happened. and yeah, it's the place I call home, it's the place I call my ukaipo, which is a beautiful word in te ao Māori that refers both to our mothers or to the people or person who looks after us in the wee hours of the night. So um, it literally translates to the night feeding breast um, and we also use it to refer to the places that we get that sustenance from as adults, you know, as, as people, as communities. So, yeah, that's putararu for me, pikitū um, marae. Actually, Anahira's doing her manu little speech today about that place, um, <laughs> which is beautiful, yeah, beautiful kind of connection. Um, and, yeah, my work, I finished my PhD in 2014, and that was looking at Māori women and Fano experiences of pregnancy and childbirth in Aotearoa really with a view to looking at um, where they found knowledge about Māori birthing from, how they were supported to enact that in their own birthing experiences, um, what were the challenges, what were the opportunities, um, what's the kind of historical impact on Māori women and whānau in the birthing space. Um, And since that time I've kind of been able to I guess grow that research a little bit more, um, a little bit like being a mother, I circle back on the same kinds of themes repeatedly um, in different forms uh, and yeah have been involved in a range of different research projects related to pregnancy, childbirth and then early childhood um, that are looking at things from a uniquely Māori perspective um, and engaging with some of our Mātauranga Māori around that. So that's a little bit about me. I'm sure there's a lot more. Oh, you asked what um,
0: inspired
1: inspired me to get into this line of work. I'm actually, I'm actually a geographer and environmental planner by training, uh, and lots of people um, kind of uh, are surprised by that. <laughs> Um, and wonder how I did a PhD in birthing in, in the geography department at Waikato University. Um, I did my masters wanting to understand the relationship as wahine to papa papatuanuku, earth mother, and really wanting to know what does that mean for us in kind of contemporary times? How do we foster that relationship? How do we embrace it? What does that look and feel like? And As part of that project, I had gone in with the intention that it would all be framed around kind of our environmental behaviours, sustainability, kaitiakitanga, those kinds of things. But actually what came through was Papatuanuku's legacy, I guess, in terms of mothering and pregnancy and childbirth. So it really was her that guided me into this particular field of work. And interestingly enough, my research on Māori birthing, and my research and work in the environment space around being kaitiaki and looking after our lands and waters and the impact of various things, colonial things on lands and waters have very similar themes. <laughs> There's very similar kinds of uh, concepts and practices that have subjected our, the body of kapatuanuku, the body of our mother, and the bodies of mothers um, and those who bear children and don't bear children of birth givers. Um, you know, there's the kind of control and extraction and exploitation that's come sits very similarly across both of those, those areas. So mm. to me, it's actually not too far apart. <laughs> Māori birthing and geography and environmental planning tend to sit kind of hand in hand in my my own experience anyway.
0: I love that. I love hearing that connection. And, you know, I've heard you speak um, a number of times about, um, yeah, the impacts of colonisation on Māori birthing, but uh, but about, specifically about the language um, and the connection piece between Papatūnuku, between land and uh, birthing bodies and um, and birth, you know, there there is this real link in the in the language. The Rio is um, such a, a key part of understanding the impacts of uh, of colonization on on Maori birthing. Um, so it does all tie in, and, and uh, you know, thanks for describing that a little more. I remember when I reading the title of your thesis and thinking geographies and <laughs> Maori maternities, like what. with the connection but you know you've just yeah um, made that beautifully clear Um, can you speak to some of the key uh, I guess findings or the key um, uh, pieces that came through in that research like what are some of um, what are some things that are going on in terms of Maori birthing um, that where we can where we can see those impacts of colonisation or the you know systemic racism that's still alive um, in in our country.
1: Yeah, so there's a few there's a few things, and maybe I'll start um, and pick up off what you've said around that relationship between you know birthing bodies and birth givers and the land and the finua. So uh, across all of the research that I do. Um, that is the kind of primary focus is what is the relationship between wahine and whenua and that sits in our wharetangata so that sits in the fact that we are born from the land Um, and to me that's both where the impacts of colonization have have been um, you know really traumatic for us as birth givers um, and as birthing bodies um, but it's also where the healing sits, yeah. So in, in that relationship, which is a it's a real lived relationship with the land, it's not a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we lapse into this kind of, oh, well, it's this metaphoric, Papa Tuanuku is our earth mother or, you know, we, we are related to the land. But actually, if we reclaim the tangible relationship that we have with the land and try and find ways to, practice and embody that relationship in our pregnancies, in our births, as parents, um, as as wahine, um, you know, as fano, as communities, then to me, there's incredible healing power that that sits there. Um but the impact of colonisation on the land and on our bodies is kind of undeniable as well. So I think it's really important that we kind of explore and unpack what that has done and what that means. In, the, in a birthing sense, you know, there's a few things that it's done that's silenced a lot of our um, historical narratives, a lot of our mātauranga, our own knowledges, both embodied knowledges and, and spiritual knowledges, about the power of birth, about the sanctity of birth. Um, it's silenced it in ways where those stories have been erased, they've been retold, um, particularly from a white male Christian lens. And so in doing that, it makes them seem taru or unclean. Um, it's been done through the silencing of our language. So, you know, as you as you mentioned, our language. Tells us already, like very simply, the the relationship between um, birthing bodies and the land, and between our role in sustaining life. You know, if we take wharetangata, for example, being the womb space of woman, but also meaning the house of humanity. Like that's powerful, right? Just reclaiming that word for ourselves is is powerful. If we think about the word hapu to be hapu is to be pregnant, but hapu is also that that word that we refer to our collective of, you know, our kind of tribal collectives, our smaller tribal collectives. The word whenua, meaning placenta and land, like we just can't deny (laughs) that relationship. But what colonisation sought to do by, you know, marginalising te reo Māori, by punishing our ancestors for speaking it, um, was to not just get rid of the language but to get rid of that relationship you know and so it's not just about the words it's about the meaning that sits under those words and i think that was a really key tool in the kind of colonial agenda to really sever women from the power of of those words when you go from that to you know to pregnant and womb and words that are so foreign to us in terms of understanding our own bodies um, you can start to see you know how how that gets diluted that power gets diluted the other important part of it though that i think came was with also the fragmentation of our communities and the physical relocation of our people from our land so you know land alienation and confiscation the pollution of our environment so it wasn't the, you know, the place that it once was that could heal and sustain us. Um, the move of families into more nuclear units um, as opposed to these intergenerational, wonderful collectives of living um, where you didn't have to raise your children on your own. Generations of people to care for you and for your children. Um, all of those things have impacted the, um, on birth and on pregnancy um, and on birthing bodies um, in really, you know, unique and particular ways. And that's not even getting into, um, you know, the move, the institutionalization of birth, which has impacted birthing bodies, not just Māori birthing bodies, but across across the board in terms of medicalization and hospitalization as well.
0: When you talked about the fragmentation of communities, um... That occurred as part of colonization. It, it, it made me think about how a lot of um uh Māori knowledges got passed passed on from generation to generation through storytelling and, and story sharing, which is um a, a real sort of a, a passion of my own, you know, a learning um, and growing and healing and that through the shared story. Um and and two thoughts came to mind around that. One is that a lot of those knowledges stopped from being able to be passed on in those same ways, A, because the language that was being stripped from you, but also, um, you know, that, yeah, these nuclear families. There wasn't this community, um, you know, where nannies were passing down their, um, their story to um, their, their um, you know, their children and their grandchildren, et cetera. Um, and but also, I know I've heard you talk about um, where well, you talked about how uh, the the stories were retold from a very white male Christian uh, sort of uh, through that sort of lens, um, and a lot of what those stories were based in were the, these legends, right? These, um, yeah, that. And that a lot of those legends were the the the, the women goddesses were removed from those legends. That they uh, there was that silencing of the power of Wahine. Um And uh, yeah, I'd love for you just to speak to that a little bit. Um, because yeah, I, I I found that quite inspiring. I I know that growing up as a as a Kiwi kid, <laughs> I um I did learn some of the the legends, you know, um, and yeah, I don't recall learning about any female goddesses. Um, this was all new to me. Hearing you speak to this, yeah,
1: yeah, and you know the the beautiful thing about our histories. Um, because when we position them as myths and legends they're kind of put in this realm of fairy tales right they, they're put in this realm of things that are not quite true they're interesting things you might tell a child but they're not an integral part of your historical makeup right of or, or who you are when we pos- when we reposition those narratives as histories they are our histories we have a genealogical relationship to these women, to these atua wahine, these female, you know, powerhouses. Um when we reposition them into historical narratives, into our cosmologies, our, you know, the creation of our world, um, and when we reposition them as being accessible to us in the here and now. Not just through um, you know a story, but actually through reclaiming a, a relationship with them and finding ways to relate to them. what are our ritual, what's our ceremony? and you know Nahuya Murphy does amazing things around around that, how we can reclaim that relationship. And it's necessary work for us to do and to think about what that looks like now in 2022 because it was stolen from us they were either erased from the narratives or they were vilified, so they were made to be the villains in the story, you know, kind of old hags, um, you know, the scary witchy kind of characters in those, re- those colonial retellings, um, or they were marginalized, so they were a side story to some kind of masculine heroic you know episode you know maui doing his thing and maui's awesome but so too was mahuika so too was paranga you know so too uh all of these amazing atua Wahine. and i think what what we miss out on because of that um as young girls yeah you know, i didn't learn about atua Wahine. i knew about papatuanuku Maybe a little bit about her and and that was it as a young Māori girl. And what we know now through the work of um, the likes of uh, Aroha Yates-Smith and Ani Mikaire is that there were, and many others, but there are hundreds of atua wahine. There are hundreds of these amazing, powerful uh, female deities that we can draw on and that we can relate to and that we can seek you know we can lean on and lean into um and you know being able to have that for our girls now for our boys for all of us for all of our tamariki um for them to know those people to know those atua to to think about their relationships with them because yeah those colonial retellings just erased or marginalized or um you know, made them as kind of sideline characters and they weren't, they were main characters in their own story, right? They were <laughs> these just amazing wahine who did amazing things as were many of our ancestors. So when we talk about our atua, these are our spiritual deities, the, these are the, the the atua that preside over a whole range of different things. Hine te iwi were being, you know, kind of key for us in the booting space but, but there being many, many others. But so too were our ancestors, you know, our wahine ancestors, and our tāne, um, they did amazing things, they left us with a whole beautiful, rich, complex, messy kind of legacy of um, lessons that we can look to, and so that's a whole nother bit of reclamation too, right, how do we retell their stories, because they
0: were also erased and marginalised. Uh, in many instances, as well. Thinking back to unattached um, birth, your first, your first baby, um, can you see impacts of of colonization of what we're talking about here on your own experience? Yeah, I think we had. Um, because I
1: was, I guess, researching in this space, I was surrounded by a very strong fan, whan- by a very, very strong Farno support. Um her birth was a big journey of reclamation for us. So, what can we do in this pregnancy and birth that is gonna reclaim parts of our um Māori practices relating to birth? And that was a lot of discovery because you know that was only 13 years ago um, but there wasn't a lot available in terms of resource. Um, I had to do a lot of talking within my own uh, whānau and I mean that's part of what I found in my research but also with my own whānau is there was a real silence a real um, silence around knowing what those practices were or how they might be reclaimed Mm -hmm. now. So I think that was a big thing for me. It was a it took a big effort. I mean, this was my job, right? I was researching this stuff. And it still took a huge amount of effort to find information, to find practices um, to to be able to reclaim in her birth. Um, key for us was reclaiming the return of the the Fenua finua, of returning the placenta to the land. Um, that was really, really important for us because right through to my generation, our whenua was not returned you know that was a policy of the of the hospitals at that time that that was you know they were to be incinerated or, or you know put down the sluice or all of that awful stuff that I still kind of wonder what the impacts of that have been on us on um, you know that the unseen impacts that that has had so to be able to restore that was was really important. Um, and part of the reason we birthed at home was also to, to try and move outside of that um, hospital system that in previous experiences, not necessarily in pregnancy and birth, had been really marginalising in terms of our ability to be as a whānau, um, in terms of you know, our own autonomy <laughs> um, and decision-making power as wahine and in terms of our, you know, cultural practices as well. So we, I made a very concerted effort to try and move as far outside of that um, system as, as I as I could at that point in my journey. You know, first-time mother too, those are, you um, can be kind of scary decisions to make um, if you're the first in your whānau to do something like that. You're the first to reclaim mukka for example, and you know all of all of the professionals are saying we don't know how. Tell clean us what that muka is be. for those. Oh, who, yeah. So mukka is softened flax fibre that we use to tie the um, the pito, the umbilical cord. Um, So you harvest it from harakeke and and you strip all the kind of green off it. And then underneath it is this beautiful, um, soft, amazing fibre that has antibacterial properties and it's just amazing. Um, And, you know, even then, again, 13 years ago, it's, again, quite common or is increasingly being used now. But 13 years ago, it wasn't something that was very common uh, at that time. So, yeah, I think colonisation impacted my first birth um, in a in sense that we had a lot of reclamation to do. You know, it was, a, it was a lot of work by a lot of people in my whanau. So, you know, my sister um, composed a karanga and she had to research that. She had to work out, you know, what 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 do we say in this instance what does that look and feel like my um
0: what is a karanga
1: karanga is a call it's a call that we do in lots of different contexts um that calls our spirit world and our ancestors uh, into our physical world um and vice versa so we do it in Porphyry in our welcoming ceremonies but Um, We also do it, uh, you know, during times of birth. So to welcome our babies into the world of light. Um, But yeah, there were lots of different things that, again, I was in the really fortunate position that I had uh, whānau members who said, yeah, we'll do this and we'll do this and we'll do this research for you and we'll figure out this for you um, as well. And I just, everyone was in that position. Not everyone has access to that kind of information.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had the question here. Like, what evidence is there that Maori continue to be negatively impacted by colonisation uh, and racism within the maternity sector? And I feel like you've already sort of um, spoken to a bit of that. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if you have anything more you want to add to that. There's also, as you as you alluded to earlier on, there is also, of course, the impacts of the general medicalization of of birth. You know, um, that is impacting us all. But yeah, specifically, Maori is it just the? Do you think it's uh, it's mostly seen in the absence of um, these traditional sort of practices, uh, cultural practices, kind of Um, yeah the lack of um, them happening the knowledge about them or is there more that you can speak to about the evidence of the the impacts
1: yeah I think um, I mean and I mean sadly the evidence is glaring there are many many studies that kind of repeat um the impacts and the ongoing impacts i think that's really important you know it wasn't something that's done and finished and we're just recovering Mm -hmm. from it's repeated in you know in multiple different ways for each wahine who who goes through particular experiences i think it is reflected in the absence of particular traditional knowledges and practices but i think it's also reflected in um the lack of a Māori workforce um, or a very limited Māori workforce in the birthing space. It's reflected in cultural incapability in much of our health workforce or, you know, the need to build that capability up um, to even understand those concepts, to even understand the tapu, the sacredness of uh, birthing bodies. Um, So, you know, again, that's an absence of cultural competency, um, in terms of those who care for us I think it's reflected in the fact that we still invest uh a lot of our trust in experts who are trained in a Western medical context um and we don't necessarily always put the same trust in our, our traditional healers um you know we're still trying to restore the place of our traditional healers, our traditional birth attendants. Um, I think it's reflected in the institutional racism that unfortunately many of our whānau experience all of the time in our maternity system. Um, and, you know, I know there are moves and there are big there are big moves and big shifts, and these are really good things. So it's not consistently experienced by Fano, but, um, I think it's still present and I think whānau is still very vigilant and kind of um, on high alert when we enter in a lot of those, particularly institutionalized birthing spaces um, around what we may or may not be enabled to, to do um, and what you know various policies and practices might do um, to impact us. Uh, both in a physical sense and a spiritual sense, and I think that spiritual component of birth is one that gets overlooked a lot um, as well, the, just how significant that is for us as Māori and as Fano.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and, uh, and I don't know the figures off the top of my head, but I can 100% guarantee that the statistics for uh, Maori um, will be poorer in terms of uh, birth outcomes, and um, and you know we know that nationally uh, suicide is the leading cause of um, maternal deaths in New Zealand, um, but that that statistic is particularly high amongst our, um, our, our Maori community. So. Uh, And that speaks volumes about the lack of um, support for understanding of um, Maori needs when it comes to, uh, you know, the spiritual and psychological um, uh, aspects of of pregnancy, birth and and motherhood.
1: Yeah, those are devastating statistics. I don't have the numbers either, um, Carla, but they are, you know, they are much higher than non-Maori and they are too high you know, they are too high, one is too high uh, in our communities, you know, one maternal suicide death, you know, but our perinatal um, mortality rates and our outcomes are much poorer, Um, and, you know, that's that's clear evidence and it's consistent evidence that has, you know, again, been repeatedly highlighted by um, those working in the sector as as unacceptable um in terms of of the impacts and the ongoing continued impacts on on birthing bodies, Māori birthing bodies.
0: Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to a hapu mama who you really want to step into their power? Um, uh, with regards to their birth experience, or those who have already experienced a traumatic birth, perhaps, um, in order to find healing and safety uh, when it comes to their next birth.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there are many, there are many things we can draw on um, at this time when we're hapu, when we're carrying new life. Um, We are in a particularly powerful position um, to connect with our tūpuna, with our ancestors, to connect with our whenua, and to connect with this amazing taonga, this amazing gift that we are growing um, and birthing and caring for. Um, And I think part of what I would want to say is there's no right way to do that. As a Māori woman, I think one of the things that came through in my research in particular, and I think about a lot, is not wanting to add more pressure to wahine about, you know, being pregnant or birthing in a Māori way has to look like this. Mm. Um, That actually we can commune with our atua wahine in a very personal way, um, you know, throughout through our everyday practice, through karakia, through you know incantations, through our intentions, um, through being on and with the land and the environment, um, you know, through singing to our babies, through talking to our babies when they're in the womb space. Um, you know, there are um there are tools, there are cultural knowledges that we can reclaim, but if you don't have access to those or, you know, you you are limited in terms of your ability to engage with those, then you still hold that power, you know, whether you speak te reo Māori or don't, whether you know your, you know, traditional histories of atua or not, regardless of that, as a mama, as wharetangata, you still hold this incredible power and sacredness and you can commune with that, and you can find ways that fit your context to commune with that. Um, the other thing I would say is, where possible, find a community of support that understand that power, <laughs> that understand and support and care for the that sanctity um, of, of the maternal body, um, of birthing bodies, of our tamariki um, find those connections they might be online you know they might be in the places that we don't expect them to be um but but search and find those because they're really important for us to be able to lean on each other but that those support systems also exist in our spiritual realm and in our land and our environment so even if we don't have those there are things we can lean on you know there are things we can lean into um there are sources of strength that we can kind of we can gain. And you know, this is such a precious time, <laughs> such a precious time for us. Um I think in terms of the birthing experience, you know, where there has been trauma, um finding ways to heal can come from our relationship with the land and the environment. It can come from understanding that um you know we have come from generations of lots of trauma and um we can find ways to heal that not just for ourselves but for generations before us as well um i think that's really important Um, and what that looks like in each context is quite different but there's some amazing resources and support uh for wahine now that you know weren't in existence five ten years ago
0: uh, as well Mm -hmm. yeah there's a a a few places um, around Aotearoa that offer hapu wānanga, um, you know, specifically kind of Maori-focused um, antenatal education, which I've heard a lot of positive things about, um, you know, over the years. Um, and those seem to be growing in, in number, which is awesome. Um, yeah. I would love for you to speak into, um, uh, tell us the story of your recent Hikui that you ventured on. Um, you recently shared shared the story at the um, at the uh, home birth Aotearoa conference and um, yeah, I was spellbound listening to your story and I would love for you to to um, to share with us yeah, what that journey was about for you um why, why you did it um and what you learnt.
1: You meant, yeah. Yeah, I kind of come back to the spiral that I spoke about when we first started talking. So at the end of my PhD thesis, it finishes with a chapter called Never Ending Beginnings. And it's, you know, again, I keep thinking of the spiral where we kind of circle back, not over the same, but you know, we kind of keep circling around and around. Um, and so my circle back around um was to to understand um, the story of one of my ancestors, Mahinarangi, Um, and I wanted to know her birth story. So she birthed Raukawa, who my tribe is named after. Um, She did so in a pretty epic way, if I I can say that. Um, And in my PhD thesis, I kind of touch on her story a little bit, but I knew through that journey that her story needed much more space to be explored and told and understood and kind of unpacked. And so this hikoi, this walk, was really to reconnect with her story, which basically, um, quite superficially actually, she walked um, very heavily pregnant from the Hastings region on the east coast of Aotearoa um, and walked probably, she walked probably around 600 kilometres um, up through Waikaremoana to Fakatani across to Tauranga, down the Kaimai Mamaku Ranges, across the Waikato River, and then over to a place called Rangiatea. And she went into labour and gave birth along the way. So she gave birth at the bottom of the Kaimai Ranges, um, and there are a whole lot of places named after her labour and birth. And caring for her newborn child in and then around that. So I wanted to understand um, what that journey would have been like for her, um, what it means for us, why did she go the way she went? What, you know, what did it feel like? What did it look like? How did she do that pregnant? And birthing and caring for a newborn child. Um, and so yeah at the end of 2020 myself and six other raokawa women retraced that journey um so over 23 days we walked about 380 kilometers um so nowhere near what she would have done and we weren't pregnant <laughs> at the time um but it was a journey of kind of reconnection to her story um it was a journey that started off kind of chasing her I thought well, that was that's how I think about it for myself I was chasing her and I somehow along this big walk was gonna find her and be enlightened and you know find healing and and you know transformation because I'd find Mahinarangi and what quickly came to be one of the biggest lessons of that journey for me was that she actually is me And I was so busy chasing and wanting to find her that I forgot about myself and I forgot about the strength and power that I had in the here and now and what that meant. And so I had to really kind of transform my thinking about her as this thing that was outside of myself, you know, as this person that was out there that was... You know, that I was trying to find and find relationship to. And actually, I found her when I turned inward. Mm -hmm. And when, and because you're forced to when you're walking, you know, 20, 20, 30 kilometers a day and you are tired and have blistered feet. And all you can do is think about, and very similar to labor and childbirth. You get to a point where you actually can't think about anything else outside of yourself. And you have to turn to the power that you have sitting within you. Which are your ancestors which is your land which is everything that we we externalize when you reclaim that and have to go into yourself which is what we had to do in the hikoi that's where i found mahinarangi and and um you know that was a huge lesson for me which is why i say you know when you said what's my advice is we have that relationship we have those relationships with our atua inside of ourselves we don't need to externalize them all of the time you know we we can find external ritual that will help us in that that communion with them, but actually they're part of us. And so in our journeys, finding that, finding that way to commune with them as part of us, I think is really important. So, yeah, we did that walk. I mean, there's so many lessons and so many learnings and, you know, just amazing things that came from that. From that journey, but a big part of it was reconnecting to that story, that birthing story of of Mahina Rangi, um, and and just her power and her magic. Like that's the word we used the most to describe that journey was magic. All of us, um, you know, we talk about the, the spiritual elements of it, but there, there was there was something else. There was something kind of magical. Um, in a very physical, painful (laughs) kind of a way, Um, you know, that that, um, it was the first time in a long time, I think, for me as a wahine that I felt imaginative and curious and playful and, you know, I could see possibility. And I think for me, I've lived in such a kind of hectic, very, um, you know, full-on world of um, lots of head stuff, you know, like having to sit in my head, you know, academic work, research work, there's a lot of head stuff. And this was an opportunity to come back into my body and the land, to come back into that alignment with body and land. And, you know, in that alignment and aligning my, the, my body and the whenua with our ancestors and with this other group of amazing women, you know the creative potential that came out of that was mind blowing. It was it was incredible.
0: I find it really really moving hearing you talk about it. I've I've, I've heard you share the story a couple of times now, but and it it gets me right in the heart space. Um, and and as you were sharing, I was reflecting on a conversation that I was having with a, a beautiful um, hapu uh, friend this morning. Um, and she was talking about her first pregnancy um, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, uh, and how she'd done all the all the planning and prep in her pregnancy. And she, you know, she had the, uh, she's going to have the beautiful candles at her birth and the, like, the pretty this and the nice that. And the, she'd done all that work. And I'm putting that in little, you know, inverted... Speech marks here, she thought she was doing the work. Um, and she ended up having a, you know a birth that went nothing like what she had hoped for and ended in a, a cesarean. And um and now here she is pregnant again, um, 16 years later, and uh and she's doing the work to prepare to to have a, a beautiful healing birth experience this time um at home and uh. And she's realised that the work isn't, and and you know, like you talked about, it's it, it's not important so much that you find these rituals that perhaps you know you could uh, bring into your your pregnancy and birth space. Um, what's what's important is that you understand that it's already all within you, and that it, actually the work comes from going inward. And from like learning um, that that incredible lesson that you 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 really felt and learned on that hikoi that you went on, which is that what you were seeking outside of yourself was actually a- about like turning inwards and realizing that you know <laughs> it's in finding yourself that's what you're really needing to do. That's the work. And um, yeah, it just. It it made me reflect on that. Um, And and in this work that I do, you know, working with people around finding healing after trauma. um, It's not about um, healing other people. We can't do that. The healing is all, like, the answers are all within us, right? We already have all this knowledge. It's just about finding ways to tap into it. Whether that's going on a, you know, like, what did you say, a 380 kilometer walk <laughs> and struggling with blisters and um, frustrations and and that or, um, or you know, meditating or um, finding space and time to sit with ourselves and to tune out to all of the outside noise and expectations and conditioning and all that stuff and finding ways to turn inwards and It's all there within us. Yeah. Beautiful, powerful messages. Wow. Why did... Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say, like I would love to hear what you're going to say there, but also a question that I had in mind around um, uh, why did Mahinarangi go on this hikoi when she was pregnant? Why did she do that journey? What was that about? What was what was she thinking (laughs) well this is this is
1: the question I was trying to find out um I I was just gonna say um you know I think I think it is important to go inward and you know I think our our ritual and our language and you know there are a whole lot of tools and and things that can support us but yeah you know it's like labor and birth you know we can have all the support systems and the tools and the strategies around us but ultimately it comes back to us and this baby us and our wharepangata us and our tupuna um, our ancestors you know it it becomes a very intimate kind of embodied uh, thing for us to do so i'm all for finding the rituals and the tools and the things that support that i think those are really important Mm -hmm. but they're not necessary all of the time and all of them aren't necessary for everybody (laughs) you know what i mean um mahinarangi went on this journey because she was awesome and because she had this incredible strategic foresight to create a place in the world for us as her descendants that's my ultimate belief it is a love story. She moved from where she was raised in the Hastings area at Kahotea to create a new life with more, her partner, the father of Raukawa. Um, he was building a house for them at Rangiātea, so that was her kind of migration to, to set up this space, set up this home, uh, her and Raukawa, and it would be our home for generations thereafter. The way she went though wasn't the most direct route. And that's where I come to the conclusion that she had strategic influence and strategic foresight because by birthing that baby where she did, no one can ever deny our tribe, the her descendants of their relationship to that place. Yeah, no, she left a whole lot of cultural knowledges embedded in the land by giving birth and labouring where she did, the p- names of those places have left us a whole lot of clues about what traditions, birth- what birthing traditions looked like in her time, what kind of our concepts were, you know, my marae on my nanny side is named ukaipo, so to circulate back to that concept that we talked about earlier, and that's named after the place where Mahinaragi first fed Raukawa, in that relationship. You know, there's a whole lot of amazing places around there. Um, She also went the way she went, I think, to solidify relationships with others uh, along that journey. So she went that way to forge relationships that would hold, again, our tribe and her descendants in good stead for generations to come. Um, And the other thing I think that's really important to note because sometimes we romanticize these stories a little bit too. Like, oh, she walked heavily pregnant from here to here and she birthed along the way. Like, you know, I can imagine her, you know, lots of us have spoken about this, about her. Oh, we imagine her walking on her own through the bush barefoot with a baby and she never would have done this on her own. She would never have been left as a hapu mama to do this journey on her own. She would have been so well looked after. She would have had an entourage of people with her who cared for her, who performed the rituals that needed to be performed when she was in labor and birthing, um, you know, who made sure that she was looked after wherever she stopped, that she would have been hosted and fed and cared for. And for me, again, it's a really important lesson for us as as Hapu Mama, that we shouldn't be left alone to do all of this on our own. That actually, you know, her journey is one that can um that is evidence that that we were well supported in our pregnancies, and our births, um, and as as new parents as well, um, no matter where we were, you know, whether we were on our own lands or whether we were moving. Um, moving through other people's places or or living somewhere else. And I think that's really important. I think it's such an important part of the birthing experience that we don't do well in, you know, in dominant society, we don't do community. We don't do collective responsibility particularly well. Um, and I think it's an area of huge need. Uh, for all of us, for all birth, birthing bodies, to have that support, that network, um, you know, particularly postnatally as well. We don't do postnatal support well at all. Um, you know, there's just this assumption that we've got to rush back into everything. Um, you know, it's it's a really, yeah, not how our tūpuna would have done it at all, and definitely not how Mahinarani did it. So she did that, Julie, because she was epic and awesome and amazing. And she was thinking intergenerationally, she was not just thinking about the here and now and her and this baby. She was thinking, you know, about us generations and generations to come.
0: Mm. Mm. What are some um like key things that Māori uh, would traditionally do uh, and in terms of that postnatal support because we've talked a little bit about um you know birth support um but but yeah what did raising a, a, a pepe to maori look like yeah well that
1: our babies are born into whanau not to parents and i think that's you know that's really important for us to hold on to um Again, when we were living collectively, that was just something that came quite easily, right? We lived collectively, you know, we lived intergenerationally. Um, Parents could actually get back and be doing everyday things because the grandparents were there, you know, and they were at a time in their lives where actually slowing down and being with children was a really important part of, of, of that intergenerational education. So for me, I think in terms of postnatal support, we do need to, to look at how we can reclaim collective support for Farno and what does that look like. Um, and, you know, again, that's going to look different for every Farno in this context. For some of us, it might mean that we do have our, our parents or our grandparents living with us for a period of time. For others, it's around, you know, you might not have anyone in the same town as you. And, and how do you actually draw in collective support um, around that? I think, though, postnatally as well, we had a period of time where the birthing body, the birth giver, stayed in a state of tapu. So we stayed in a state of sacredness uh, until, uh, for a period of time until the tohi ceremony was, was performed. And the tohi ceremony was really... Releasing that mother and child, and there are there are a number of ceremonies actually postnatally, but tohi was one of them. Um, and there were tohi ceremonies, which are cleansing ceremonies as well. But the tohi ceremony was, in some accounts, where that mother and child were released back into the world of light, so where they were able to kind of move around as they may have done um, previously. I, I haven't, I don't know entirely the timing of that. But there's some reference to um when the um, umbilical cord falls off, then you're ready to perform the tohi So not a huge length of time really, um, in the scheme of things. But I think that was one process in the moving back into the, you know, the everyday. And so holding on to that sacred time, I think, is really important for Fanu. Um, you know, understanding that mama and Pepe are still in a, a space of um still straddling the physical and spiritual worlds that's what that sacred space is we're not yet fully in marama, which is our world of light it's out every day you know it's when we can kind of move about and do those things so there were yeah lots of practices i think that that wrapped support around mama postnatally and, and really i think it's our job to keep thinking about what that looks like now you know um We used to have birthing houses, some wahine had birthing houses where they would be, they would go away from the papakainga, from the village, and they would birth in these birthing houses and they would be attended to, they would be bought food, you know, they would be really well looked after, and then they would come out after the tohi ceremony, Um, but that's not always the case, there were others where it was just part and parcel of everyday life. Um, but there were enough hands on deck. you know there were enough people, there was enough resource to be able to look after that that Hapu mama and that baby um, in that postnatal period.
0: Um, we' just about um finished this awesome kōrero. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. I love it. Um, But I just want to finish with asking you a question that I asked lots of my guests, which is, uh, if you could go back to the pre motherhood version of Naomi, (laughs) what's one piece of um, advice or wisdom that you would share with her?
1: That's such a hard question. It's a great question. Such a hard question. I'm not even sure I would recognise the pre-motherhood naomi that's probably the first the first thing i would say um i think my learning on the hikoi on the walk and my learning through both of the births of my daughters um has been around surrender actually and and so if i could go back and talk to naomi free anahira, um, it would be around letting go, surrender, um, and and trust in yourself, trust in your body, trust in your relationship with the land, and surrender to that, because that's what will hold you. Um, but I'm not sure I would recognize that pre-mother, Naomi. Not sure she would be identifiable to me, to be honest.
0: Yeah, like how incredibly transformative is Motherhood, hey, eh? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that wisdom that that share um, for us to end the this kōrero on. Um yeah. And when it's as, as soon as you said uh the word surrender, um, the word for me that came through was trust. You can't surrender without trust. And and that's what this just so much of this, this learning, this, this healing journey is all about when it comes to, you know, the, the world of birth. Um, it's about learning to trust our innate, Mm. um, yeah, birthing wisdom as, as women. Um, yeah. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much, Naomi. This has been such a gift and pleasure. Um, I wish you, such beautiful things for this the rest of your pregnancy and for your birthing journey with this next peppy um I and I can't wait to hear your your next story thanks
1: thank you Carla it's been pleasure and so nice to be asked questions of you know sometimes I get stuck in the same kind of thinking on on you know what I've been through and what i've learned so it's nice to get probed and ask questions and be able to kind of think about things from a different angle it's been awesome
0: (laughs) happy to probe you some more in the future (laughs) yeah (laughs) be great (laughs) thank you for listening to this episode of the healing birth podcast if you like what you heard please spread the love by sharing this podcast with others or if you'd like to connect with me, you can get hold of me via Instagram at healing.birth and through my website, healingbirth.co.nz. I'd love to hear from you, whether that's so you can share feedback or suggestions, or because you're potentially interested in working or training together. Let's do it. hanoi, you beautiful people.